Let me pray for our time in Psalm chapter 7, and we will jump right in. Father, uh, it's good to be in your house. Um, it's good to be in a place where the, the people of God gather to sing great music, to take communion, to give of our, of, of our financial resources, to pray, and very important, to hear from your word, because your word is truth. And uh, as we've gone through the Psalms, it's been interesting that uh, uh, there's a lot of emotionally charged language in the Psalms, and we live our lives sometimes in, in a very emotionally charged situation. So I pray that the text of God would relate to the life that God has given us, and that there would be Uh, understanding of how we can apply this by the conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit to our lives. So I pray in Psalm 7 today that you would clarify, that you would give us uh, a true understanding of what you have to say to us in this psalm and that we would walk out of here transformed by your Holy Spirit, uh, convicted and challenged and encouraged to live a greater life of obedience to you and a greater life uh, of, of love towards you and towards others. We pray uh, that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're doing a summer in the Psalms. We're going through the first 10 Psalms of the book of Psalms. And we're going to end sometime in late August. And then we're going to start a new sermon series about that same time. Uh, But we've been going through the Psalms uh, because I believe they have a way of merging the reality of life with the great theological depth and truth about who God is. A lot of people ask, you know, how do I apply the great truths of Scripture to my life? And I think the Psalms give us that marriage between reality and what we know about God and how those two things intersect. And sometimes it's challenging to us how that happens and how that comes about. But we need to know who God is and how he acts in the world, especially in some difficult times in our life. And this Psalm is shortly written, uh, sh- written shortly after David has a very difficult time in his life, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what that looked like here in a second. But all of the Psalms were originally written as a songbook. So you can imagine standing in the presence of God with his people, singing these Psalms or these songs to God. Uh, now they are written words in a book that we call the Bible, so that they are scripture, they are God-breathed, they are infallible and inerrant, and true in all that they say, but they were written originally as songs. And and it's kind of interesting to say that because our songs sometimes differ uh, from what the Psalms are. Sometimes they're very similar, but you see a lot of David struggling, especially, excuse me, in the last few Psalms that we've talked about, he's struggling with some deep suffering. Um, Songs are a way of expressing deep emotion uh, or what Jonathan Edwards, a great Puritan theologian, one of the last Puritans wrote, were the affections of the heart. So our emotions, our affections can be seen in the book of Psalms and we can know how to relate our emotional life to the reality and the truth of who who God is. So this particular psalm and some of the psalms that we've looked at have shown us that David feels about God in the midst of suffering and he feels in a couple different ways. He feels deeply, he's very passionate Um, I joke a lot that I have Swedish heritage and that Swedes are very stoic. Actually, they're probably not. They're the Vikings, for crying out loud. So they're very passionate people, probably. But uh, I'm an emotional person, believe it or not. Sometimes I might seem like I'm not. Sometimes I might seem a little robotic, a little bit maybe too uh, uh, rational in my my way I approach life. But I'm very emotional. If you want to see the depth of my emotion, 
uh, come with me to watch a movie like Rudy, okay? Like anything football-related with an inspiring, heroic figure, uh, I'm going to cry like a baby. Uh, but, but we all have emotional times, right? We all have emotions, things that come out of us, and those are the affections. And uh, David, as he writes these particular psalms in the midst of suffering, he feels deeply, he feels passionately, But what also is interesting about David, or I should say, and what is interesting about David, is he feels theologically. Uh, I think that's going to be a journey for all of us for the rest of our lives, is how do we feel deeply and passionately? I think we know that, we understand that, but how do we feel theologically? And I think David did this because he knew God, he delighted in God's word, and and because of that relationship with God and the And the delighting in his word, as it talks about in Psalm chapter 1, it enabled uh, David to be governed by a deeper theological understanding of God, which was working in concert with his emotions, his affections, and it was allowing him to have a filter or grid to which to see life. That is the reason why uh, the Bible is critically important to your Christian life. It helps you feel theologically. It helps give you a filter, an emotional filter, that you can approach life and suffering in difficult circumstances with a feeling of theological uh, understanding as well as passion and, and the regular emotions that, that we uh, experience. So for me, um, the Psalms have been a vital source of truthful comfort in some very difficult times. And it's one of the first places that, that I used to go, and now it's the primary place I go when things are difficult, when there's an emotional uh, issue, when I, I'm struggling with the ups and downs of life, I go to the Psalms. And today, we're going to see uh, a reason why David does that, and we're in Psalm chapter 7, thanks to Andy for reading that. And Psalm chapter 7 starts with the title, A Shigeon of David. What is a Shigeon? Boy, oh boy, there's only one other time in the Bible, in Habakkuk chapter 3, that that is mentioned, a shigeon, but this is, uh, it's tough for some scholars to get their hands around what this this means, and the meaning still is a little unclear, but most scholars think it describes uh, that this particular psalm is going to express some extreme ups and downs, okay? And if you read the psalms at, at any length, you will understand that David has extreme ups and extreme downs. He probably would have been diagnosed with some sort of, of psychological uh, issue if he were to be in our time today because these were high highs and very low lows. There were, it was an extreme up and down experience for him. And I gotta be honest, there have been extreme up and down experiences in my life and I'm sure in yours as well if you've lived any amount of time There are days where it is all dialed in and you are ready to go to grab the proverbial life by the tail and to carpe diem in the words of Robin Williams in the Dead Poet Society. You know, seize the day, right? And then there are days where life has you by the tail and it's like that cartoon with Tom and Jerry where the mouse, you know, gets the superpower and he's banging the cat back and forth. I probably shouldn't talk about that. If you're a member of PETA, I apologize. But you you can feel that life can be like that. Like you are getting beat up and then the next day it's up and then down and up and then down. And what I really love about David is that his life was an emotional experience as well as a theological experience. But he had these extreme ups and downs. And, and what I really appreciate about, him, uh, appreciate about him is he didn't filter that much. He, he approached God honestly. 
That's what it means when I say he didn't filter that much. He just came to God, his father, and said, this is where I'm at. This is the honest place where I'm at in my heart. This is, this is the depth of what I'm experiencing. And, and he keeps it real with himself and with the church because these psalms were expressed to the church. They, they were songs about David's life that were sung by, by the church, by God's people. It's an amazing thing that he was willing as the king of Israel to express himself so honestly. Um, this psalm was written apparently after a very strong and powerful person in the tribe of Benjamin slandered David. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, slander today because it's part of the context of, of this passage of this psalm. And basically this person told things that were untrue and, and People do that to us. People tell things about me all the time that, that, that are untrue. For instance, you know, they might say that I'm overweight, which is completely untrue. Uh, I don't struggle with that at all. Uh, th- there's those mild things where people tell untruths about you to other people. This was not that type of, uh, of slander or untruth. This was devastating slander. This was slander, as we'll see in this passage, that shook David to, to his bones, and it had this very negative impact on David and his reputation and his standing with the people of Israel. Slander is spoken of throughout Scripture, and it's a very serious sin, and it's listed as damaging uh, to great degrees, excuse me, along with gossip and quarreling and jealousy and anger and conceit and disorder. All of those are just listed in one verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. But slander is mentioned a lot. It's a very serious sin. And one of the reasons why it's so serious is it gets to the, the image of God that has been given to people. Like when God sees people and he sees someone lying about them, it's not just a slap in that person's face. It's a slap uh, in the face of the creator who made that person. So we can understand that this is very serious sin that's been committed against David. And it's so serious that it damages David's reputation. And this is what's important. So if if you're a person who struggles with this, which probably all of us are, or if you're a person who has been slandered, which probably all of us are, the impact of slander has a devastating effect on your soul. This isn't just stuff, outward stuff that that happens to us and we kind of blow it off. It gets inside, okay? Both if you're committing that sin and if it's done against you, it it, it hurts the soul. And we'll talk about that as we go through this passage. But in in light of this slander that David experienced, I want to ask a couple questions. How did he react? How should we react? And both of those questions, I believe, are explained in this psalm. So let's get into it. Verse 1 and 2 starts this way. Oh Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. The first thing when David is slandered against is, uh, he, the first thing he does is he takes refuge in God. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that when my brother and I would get into spats, man, we would just have it out. We'd get the gloves on. And that's kind of the response of our hearts when we are slandered we don't take refuge in God. We take refuge in, in you know, the, the gun show, right? We're going to take revenge. We're going to take care of business on our own. And we start planning right away. I'm not taking refuge in anybody but myself. And our first response, if you don't believe me, 
turn on reality TV, okay? Our first response is, I've got to defend my reputation. I've got to make a case. I've got to go on the offensive so that I can defend myself. The first thing David does, he takes refuge in God. He seeks refuge in God. Refuge is a really amazing word. Um, we, we think of refugees, people who are escaping maybe a political, uh, um, a bad, situ- a pl- bad political situation and they're, they're seeking refugee status in another country. Uh, refuge is this great biblical word for safety. It's for safety. David was, uh, was a powerful person in the kingdom of Israel. He probably could have summoned soldiers or people that were loyal to him to go take care of this person and handle things himself. But he knew ultimately that would not be refuge. That would not be safety. That safety can only be from God. David wants to be protected and safe from his enemies. And instead of lashing out, he seeks God's protection. Now, I I think this is a natural reaction for some of us. There's other natural reactions, but this can be a natural reaction to seek safety from God. And, And for those of you who might not feel that way, it's okay to seek safety from God. It's okay for that to be the first place that you go to when you're attacked or maligned or pursued as David was in this situation. Now, there's another natural reaction that won't go so well. I mentioned it earlier. It's to attack back. It's to set your case up. Now, notice David did not do that. He went directly to God. And this is really critical and talks about this later in this passage. Why did he go directly to God? Number one, he had a sense of innocence. He had a clear conscience. Now, this is the tough part. Because a lot of times when we are maybe an innocent victim of someone slandering us or someone attacking us or pursuing us or maligning us in some way, um, we might not want to seek refuge in God because our conscience isn't clear. We've contributed And maybe we're not as innocent as we think, but David in this situation has a sense of innocence. He has a clear conscience that he can go to God and say, God, in this particular situation, because we know David didn't have this experience a lot, but in this particular situation, someone is coming after me. I am an innocent victim. I am going to run directly to you because you alone are powerful enough, and this is the second reason why David goes directly to God. You alone are powerful enough to fight for true justice. I think even in the midst of this difficult situation, David had a speck of uncertainty that he was thinking in, truly just, uh, in a truly just way. And so he goes to God, not only because he, he believes I've got a clear conscience, But he knows that I can get confused, but God never does. When it comes to doing the right thing, I can get confused, but God never does. David doesn't attack. He doesn't lash out. He goes to God and he says, God, I'm going to you with a clear conscience. I don't believe that I've participated in this particular situation. I don't believe I deserve this. But I'm going to give it to you because I know you will never get confused. You will always mete out perfect justice in perfect timing in your perfect way. It's an incredible depth of belief and trust that, that, that this man has in God. And it comes from this relationship that has been developed in extreme highs and extreme lows. He also went directly to God because he knew that this situation 
could completely devastate his soul and there would be nothing left. Talks about this, I believe, in, in verse uh, 2. Um, take, uh, let me go back to one. Oh, Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Okay, I don't know how many of you have been attacked by a lion. Anybody? That'd be a really... I'll bring you up here if you have. I want to see a, a bite scar or something, but... I don't know if you've ever been attacked by a lion, and I'm not talking about the lion in the zoo, okay? The lion in the zoo that gets fed on a regular basis and usually isn't hungry enough to attack anybody, and if they do, you never see it because you just read about some poor zookeeper that's no longer with us, right? I'm talking about in the wild, a lion who is hungry all the time is either sleeping or eating. That's what they do. It's kind of like my dog, Bodhi, okay? The sleeping eater, Okay? He, 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 when he is on the prowl for prey, he is dedicated to the mission. And when he catches his prey, he goes into it with a ferocity that there is nothing left. Bones are broken. Meat is consumed. You cannot recognize the, the, the prey, the, the animal that was there before the lion got to it. David is saying that if my pursuers keep coming after me, if people who are slandering me keep getting away with it, they keep coming after me to attack me and malign me, and I have this situation, my soul will be completely devastated to the point where you won't recognize me. Now, I go into a little bit of detail in this because I think some of you might be married to or know somebody who has changed Uh, Because of of situations in life, they are no longer the person they used to be. And you might have even told them that, hey, I don't recognize who you are. What has happened? The answer might be their soul has been completely devastated. They have been changed. They are no longer recognizable because the sin that has been committed in the context of this passage against them has devastated their soul. Now, What's interesting is the first thing that my mind went to as I read this passage about about the lion is I reflected forward into the New Testament about the other lion that that the New Testament talks about. His name is Satan. And Satan looks like this this beautiful thing, but he's more like a lion who wants to destroy the people of God. And you reflect this passage into that, and you say, not, he, he wants to completely devastate your soul. And if you're a Christian who has had that situation where your soul has been lost, you've been completely devastated, you are no longer the person that you uh, used to be because of sin that has been committed against you, let me remind you of Jesus Christ crucified. Crucified, risen, and coming again. That he is the one who has defeated the lion, that through his death, burial, and resurrection, he has victory over sin and Satan and death. And you can be restored. If you don't know Jesus, all you can look forward to if you're the victim of this type of situation is a lost soul. You don't want to live that way. We'll talk about how Jesus changes that situation here in a little bit. But he goes directly to God because of his soul is in danger. 
he is teetering at a place or on the precipice of unbelief, sadness, and despair. And this is critical. He wants God to give him safety, and he knows only God can give him safety. There are people who will go through this life, and they will never experience a, a, like really, really trying and troublesome things. It even talks about that some Christians will 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 live like kings, and they'll they'll just they'll have what you would call an easy life, even though there's probably struggles and things that they deal with. They'll go through life, and it will seem easy. And then there are Christians and followers of Christ who will go through life. And it will be like one long experience in the lion's den. That's what life will give them. And for those people who are in that second group that that are going to have a life put before them where they're going to experience some difficulty, some trying times, some circumstances that many of us will never understand nor comprehend, God alone is your safety. He alone is your refuge. Verse 3 through 5, um, I would say this. David mentions in this passage, uh, in these verses, that he doesn't, quote-unquote, deserve this treatment. We talked about his claim to innocence. And David, in reflecting on this issue, can't think of anything he has done to warrant this treatment from this other person. And and I have a question. Do you think he would have made those statements in verse 3 through 5 if he had something to hide or if there wasn't a clear conscience? Probably not, right? I mean, he must be really convinced that that he has a clear conscience because when David isn't convinced of that, and you can read, for instance, Psalm chapter 51, he cries out for mercy. He doesn't justify himself. And I, I think I wanted to explain that because some of us come to God and say, rescue me from this situation, and oh, by the way, overlook that little part of that sin that I committed to have this thing happen to me. God, God won't do that. If you are tolerating and managing sin in your life, it's difficult for God to intersect and rescue you in that. Now, if you will confess and repent and believe and turn from that and, and rightly say, this is my stuff, and I'm taking it to God to experience his forgiveness, his redemption, and his restoration, he, he can rescue in that. And that's the way David approaches God. When, when he has sinned against, again, going back to that thought of, He's probably got a bit of uncertainty that he's perfectly clean in this situation. But when he sinned against, he cries out for God's justice. And this is okay. It's okay for you to cry out for a perfect God's justice. What's not okay is for you to seek to deliver that justice. To seek to uh, be a party to taking back control of how that justice is me- meted out. doesn't mean that we don't report things to the authorities when crimes are committed against us and we're active in that. We need to do those things. What I'm talking about is taking ownership over the revenge or the justice and saying, I will do this. God has no part in it. God is the perfect person for justice. It's okay to cry out for him, uh, cry out to him for justice. Why is it? Um, the first thing is he can figure it out. Like I'm in this really complicated situation even right now where, you know, it's not necessarily sin, but it kind of is, kind of not. And, 
you know, who's right and who's wrong and navigating, well, this person did that and this person said this and this person's requiring this. Well, why wouldn't they do it this way? And why wouldn't they do it that way? And, you know, it's just like over circuitry, you know. I, I, I get bamboozled sometimes by trying to figure out. David says, I'm not going to try to figure this out. I'm going to cry out to God for justice. He can figure it out. And not only can he figure it out, he will do the right thing every time. He will do the right thing every single time. He is perfect. Here's some questions that you can ask when you get attacked. Am I innocent in this situation? If the answer to that is yes, trust God to give you safety and to deliver his justice. If the answer is no, and this is where we Americans can struggle. If the answer is no to the question, I don't think I'm innocent in this situation, accept your part and seek reconciliation and restoration really hard for us to accept our part and we'll nod in agreement I yes pastor I will accept my part yes Jesus I will accept my part and then we'll go right out the door and we're like tomorrow I'll accept my part or next week I'll, I'll deal with that accept your part the king of Israel David at this time the, the one of the most powerful people in, in the land was great at accepting his part. There were times where he was innocent and he deserved what God would, would, would do in terms of justice and, and, and pursuing David's pursuers. There were times when he was guilty and he accepted his part. A truly self-aware person knows the difference between their innocence and when they need to accept their part. At the end of the day, God knows our hearts. He knows our innocence or our guilt in all of these situations. But because of David's innocence, he asks uh, in verses 6 to 11, I'm not going to read them, but I'm going to go over them briefly. He asks God to act. Because of his innocence, David feels the, 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 the privilege, he feels the, the responsibility to ask God to act. And this is where things get tough because I think a lot of us believe that Christianity is the religion of nice so the highest value that you can express as a Christian is just be nice. Be nice. Um, if you've been around me long enough, you know that nice to me is, is a four-letter word, and it's not in the Bible. God, God is a God of truth. God is a God of love. He's also a God of justice. He's a God of wrath. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. And we can't understand all those things and put them all together but the following of Jesus is not a religion of nice. It's a religion of following Jesus in all of his truth. And in that vein, David asks God to act, and he asks God um, first to act in his anger. To act in his anger. Now, why, why would David ask God to be angry with people? Because God's anger is as perfect as God's love. We can't understand that. Um, I, you know, I, I understand when people say God is and then they fill in the blank and it's usually something that you can put on a, on a mug right next to a little cute figurine. Okay, so God is merciful and love. I just like it when people stop at God is. God is. 
God's anger is as perfect as his love. And you and I can't understand that because when we act in anger, 98% of the time, it's unrighteous anger. It's anger that seeks vengeance. It's anger that seeks to destroy others. It's anger that seeks to prop ourselves up and demean other persons. We don't get that, there, that God can have a perfect anger, but God, David understands this and he asks God to act in his anger because God's anger is as perfect as God's love. He, he can be angry and act on it and never sin. Secondly, Dad, uh, David asks God to act in this way. He wants the people of God to see God's anger and judgment Do you know why he asks this? He asks it because it's a grace of God to see God act in a way that appears angry and in his judgment because it allows people to know that God deals with sin and also that he would have all his people know that he is the final judge of all things. So when the people of God see God act in a way that appears in perfect anger, they see God's judgment and they're, Number one, they're, um, they're inclined to say, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to be obedient. I want to love God through my obedience to him. And secondly, it reinforces the fact that at the end of the day, God is the judge of all things. We don't serve a God. We serve the true and living God who will judge everything. The third way that David asks God to act is he wants the Lord to judge him and to judge others. Again, David is willing to come before God and ask him to show where his sin, if any, resides and to judge accordingly. It's a very self-aware, spiritually mature, grown-up adult thing to do. Hey, God, I may not be innocent in this. Judge me accordingly as well. Judge me and, and the other people, but judge... Uh, me accordingly with your justice as well. And he's also willing to have God judge and test the mind and the heart, the thoughts and the motive. David trusts God will do the right thing with him and with those who attack him. Do you have that measure of trust in God? David is an incredible uh, just, uh, uh, testimony to how a person can be deeply trusting of a God who created them. The last thing he asks God to do in his actions in this situation is he wants to be shielded from further attacks. It's okay to ask. Hey, God, I, I never want this to happen again. Please, in your mercy, refrain this from happening to me again. Keep it at bay. Keep this situation at bay. However, if it comes, let me deal with it like I'm dealing with this one. David is going to work on his heart, but he's going to leave the protection of his heart and his life to God. It says here that God will shield the upright in heart. David isn't on the attack. He's going to his heart, and he's saying, where is my heart wayward in this situation? How have I lost my way, if any? And I'm going to leave the justice and the protection and the fighting back, if you want to call it that, to God. Lastly, David um, trusts, in verse 12 through 16, David trusts that sin will have its consequences in the life of the sinner. Um, and he uses some very powerful phraseology. And this, this actually is 
funny in a non-funny sort of way. Uh, this is the first one. He conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief. Uh, an evil person conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief. Like, it's, it's this picture of they just can't get away. I mean, their belly is full of mischief. They're churning out kids of mischief, not literal kids, but, but their little minions of their consequences of their life are happening. They're conceiving evil, pregnant with mischief. And I'll say it this way. Without Jesus, you can expect that people are prone in this direction. If you don't know Jesus Christ, this verse, this passage is speaking directly to you. You are a conceiver of evil and you're pregnant with mischief. You're always finding ways to thwart the will of God, to disobey him. He says this phrase, he makes a pit and falls into it. Um, I don't know what Clint Eastwood movie it was. I probably shouldn't remember what Clint Eastwood movie it was, but maybe it was the good, the bad, and the ugly. Anybody see that one? Where they're digging the graves for themselves? And I just thought of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly guy all, you know, digging graves and uh, unwittingly knowing, or maybe wittingly knowing, that one they're 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 digging their own grave. The actions of of their life, the actions of your life, without Jesus, you are digging your own grave. And you might think it's a really noble thing that you're doing. You might really think that this is a real amazing piece of my wonderful personality that I can go do this thing. But your actions are digging your own grave without Jesus. You're digging your own grave. It says this, his mischief returns on his own head. Without Jesus, you will reap what you have sown. And there will be a violence of soul and body that will return to you. So while you're living the good life, and while you're experiencing life on your own without Jesus Christ and it seems like it's dialed in and everything is going according to plan, the promises of this passage are that violence of soul and body will return to you. Without Jesus, you can expect that people are prone to evil and mischief. Without Jesus, you are digging your own grave. Without Jesus, you will reap what you have sown. And without Jesus, violence of soul and body will return to you. And the image isn't a pleasant one. It's a wedding of a sword and the arrows being drawn back and ready to go. Uh, my son, older son's not here with us this morning. He was, uh, he's at, with a friend at their church today. And he was with that friend last night playing airsoft. Who's airsoft? Come on. There you go. Thank you. I mean, I, I even get into airsoft every now and then, and I want to be a sniper because you don't have to move. You can just go lay down and cover yourself with some leaves and brush and take a nap, and you'll be fine, and you'll win, okay? So I want to be a sniper, but my son loves to watch these videos of snipers in airsoft, and it's so funny uh, because there's a couple where they're, you know, the they've got the scope view so all you see is the crosshairs through the scope on this video and the crosshairs in this game uh, because the sniper's really good are directed right at the nose which hurts okay you don't want to get shot in the nose right at the nose of this person 
just ready to pull the trigger and, you know, have inflamed nostrils come out. Okay? Just ready. I mean, that sniper is ready to go. The, the consequences of our sin, God is ready. He's ready to judge. He is ready to, to initiate the reaping of the consequences that you have sown. Without Jesus, that is what awaits you. But David, as usual, always ends with the great hope. And he does it in this chapter in verse 17. He says this, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. There is a ton packed in this. Like I could do a whole, you know, another 50 minutes. You guys want to go another 50? No. Okay. Uh, This is amazing. Without Jesus, no hope. With Jesus, hope. Complete, total, perfect hope. David says that the thanks, that he will have a, a victory in this situation, the thanks is due to Jesus' righteousness. It's due to his righteousness. Do you notice he doesn't say it's due to my righteousness that I'm going to escape this and God, you're my servant and slave to get me out of all these bad things that I've got myself into. He says through the righteousness of the Lord, I can escape the consequences of the sin that is committed against me and the sin that I've committed. It's his righteousness. We call that justification in big theological terms. That Jesus takes on all of your sin and he gives you all of his righteousness. Atonement is another theological word. He made atonement for your sin. He paid the ultimate sacrifice for your sin. The hope is in Jesus. And he says because of that, I can sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. That means nothing is higher, more powerful, more perfect, more just, more loving than Jesus. And when we go to the communion table, and you had a really up and down week, maybe mostly down, maybe it was the worst, Uh, maybe it was way up, and, and you're living the good life in light of Jesus and with Jesus in relationship to Jesus, whatever it is, you can come to the communion table. Because without Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, if you're a follower of Christ, without that, you would have nothing but the reaping of your own consequences of your sin. Jesus took it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Jesus washed it white as snow. Your soul doesn't need to be devastated by sin, by Satan. By the world. Jesus can restore and redeem and we practice what that looks like when we come to this table and we take his body and, and, and we dip it in the wine or the juice representing his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins and we celebrate that we sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High and we give him thanks due to his righteousness, not ours. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're invited to come to the communion table We would love for you to do that. Um, Even if you're not part of our church, you're welcome to be a a part of that. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the communion table is reserved for those who know Jesus, are following Jesus, have a relationship with Jesus. Let me pray for us.
Uh, Father, I love David because he, he's aware enough of, of his heart to know that when he's in the right and when he's in the wrong, there's an authenticity there that I think that we would, would gain from as followers of Jesus Christ if we would just admit to you what you, what you already know. That we would admit to you that we're, we're struggling with the sin of pride, with the sin of control, with the sin of, of trying to please people instead of pleasing God. We have a, an addiction to approval. We are nursing all the things that are wrong with us with with things like alcohol or, or sex or drugs or or relationships, whatever it is, God, that we're seeking other than you, we can admit it to you. And we know because of your righteousness, not our own, that we can come straight to the Father. We can experience your forgiveness. We can be accepted as a child of God through your mercy and through your grace. And we can walk in the light of that mercy and that grace. So as we come to the table, I pray that you would convict us of sin, that we would rightly admit it to you, freely admit it to you, that we would experience and receive your your gift of forgiveness, and that we would celebrate what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.